0: And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Alex Auerbach is a licensed counseling and sports psychologist. He's a certified mental performance consultant and board certified coach working in professional sports. He's worked with elite teams and performers from a range of domains, including the NBA and the NFL, Olympians, Army Special Forces, Fortune 5 companies, and venture-backed startups. Currently, he is the senior director of of wellness and development for the Toronto Raptors who play in the National Basketball Association. I really enjoy Alex's work. He's a great follow on Twitter, and he's also good friends with another friend of mine, Cody Royal. And in this conversation, we do a deep dive into the world of sports psychology. We talk a lot about leadership and culture and how individuals and teams need to work from the inside out and develop the mindset they need to be at their best and how environments can impact us from the outside in. Alex is my kind of thinker. He loves to think about and research and study science and best practices that exist in psychology. And we both are extremely curious and passionate about what makes teams great and how do we create environments that can help individuals to unlock their potential. So here is Alex Auerbach. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the podcast Where I thought we'd start is um, with environments, because the more research I did with you, um, the more I noticed you talking about how do we create environments. And at least when I went to grad school for sports psychology, I felt as though most of the focus of my education was on the individual. And the more work I do, the more I wonder about, you know, are we trying to help athletes work from the inside out, or are we trying to impact environments that can help them be their best from the outside in. And so I'd love to riff with you on that because I feel as though I still need more education on it. So it's where I'm probably most curious about. Um, So tell me about how you think about that, how you think about how you can impact an environment, uh, certainly at the professional level in sports.
1: Well, Brian, first, thanks for having me. And I love this question. It's also super timely because I spent an hour this morning talking with a guy named Christopher Henriksen, who, in my view, is kind of the pioneer of more the environment work in sports psychology and has done a lot of work around what he calls the holistic ecological approach, which is just this idea that, you know, we need to position the people around athletes and peak performers generally to facilitate peak performance, to be enhancing of performance versus the sort of static thing that athletes walk into and you just deal with what you have. So I think for me, you know, I'm very similar to you, right? I came up through a counseling psychology PhD program with some double training in sport and performance psychology. And really everything I was exposed to was about like the individual performer, right? How do I, as one solo person, reach my full potential and perform great consistently? And I think that's a super interesting concept. But when you get into the field and you get into the spaces, what you find is that the athletes report the single biggest thing that blocks them from peak performance is organizational stuff. It's stuff around the stress and dynamics of the environment, relationships with coaches, things like financial stress, right? It's the stuff around them. It's not usually the stuff happening on the court. That's sort of the the biggest pain point. And so that pushed me to really think about that more and where I've landed, I guess, is, is a few things, right? So one is, um, the environment that it, the idea that the environment is responsible for developing talent, I think, versus thinking about talent as this thing we just find and plop in somewhere and it'll do its thing. You know, it's kind of like watering a garden, you've got to think about it that way. And so I've started to figure out, you know, what can I do to sort of move us toward a more coherent and integrated environment that promotes player development and thinks about that. And I'm lucky to work at an organization that's really oriented the same way. The same as thinking about things like culture and values, which I'm sure you, you're familiar with and are really important to you too, right? Um, but how do we create a culture that people feel like they can belong in, that they feel like they can see themselves in, that they feel connected to? Um, and then I guess the third element for me is thinking about how we integrate across um people, spaces, places in the environment to facilitate peak performance. So how do we get sports psych, talking to medical, talking to coaches, talking to front office with everyone being aligned on the same philosophy and having the same ideals, because ultimately the players then hear one consistent message and that really helps promoting their overall health and high performance.
0: It's interesting. We're going to come back to culture, but before we do that, I want to just try to paint the picture for what you think is best practice, so to speak, Uh, Look, in the NBA, let's just start there. There are people like Don Kolkstein, who's been with the Dallas Mavericks for a long time. Don sits behind the bench. Um, He actually keeps a pretty low profile when it comes to uh, doing stuff like coming on podcasts. Um, But he's been connected to the coaching staff. He was connected to Rick Carlisle before he left. Um, And then there are others who come in as consultants and will work with athletes. I've done some work with with athletes and done some consulting on NBA teams. And then you have others where they're really connected to the front office. um, And I've seen that on NBA teams. I'm not going to get into the specifics of every single team, but from your lens and being with the Raptors, what does it look like from a best practice standpoint, as far as how sports psychology should be integrated Into a team, and let's just focus on on the NBA. Let's just focus on one team. And um, from your lens, like, what do you think it, it should look like?
1: I wish I had an answer for you, like what I thought was absolute best, kind of across systems. But I know and you know, their systems are so different. What I can say for me that I find most impactful is having my own little playground, basically. Um, and so, you know, when I was at Arizona, before I came to Toronto, um, University of Arizona, it was really important to me to sort of like, be my own entity, right, to have my own department to be recognized as a core piece and part of what's happening in in the organization to have the same um, rights, responsibilities, reporting structure as every other leader in the organization. And so, you know, if you want to talk about different models, right, there's like you're mentioning the consulting model where you're sort of like a lone wolf. And I think that can work some places really well. And then you've got other models where the sports psychologist reports through sports medicine, and that can also work really well. And then you've got models like, you know, you mentioned Don and Dallas where they're maybe more tied into the coaches and that can work. And then you've got people like me who report up through management um, and are sort of standing in their, their own space. And I think all of them have unique strengths and weaknesses for me, what resonates most in having my own little space is that it's seen as equal and important and valued in the same way everything else that's happening in the organization is valued. Um, and it it takes work, obviously, to build that up and to get to that point. And there's a lot of educating
0: um,
1: and collaborating and all the other things that go into successfully operating a department or building this rollout. But at the end, what you have is um, kind of like a unique respect for the psychological aspect of sport that I think in other Structures may not be as salient, right? And so, I, I wish I could say I thought there was one right way to do it, but this is the way that works for
0: me. Yeah, I've been asked that question by a lot of general managers in a lot of different sports, and I always say, like, I don't know. Um, there are people I admire in our space, uh, whether it's Angus Mumford or uh, Michael Gervais or yourself, or I mean, I've had on people on the podcast that I think do do great work. I think to your point, if you think of it as like a one size fits all, you might be missing like what's, what's most important for us. And um, so I, I've seen it done so many different ways and uh, I, I struggle with that answer. And I, I think also who you're working with matters, right? So I know you're big on thinking of it holistically and and thinking about not just performance, but also mental health. Uh, I'm curious because I'm not someone. I got my master's in sports psych, and I was very uh, cautious to not overstep uh, when it came to my training. For you, when there is someone in the organization that is dealing with some clinical challenges, whether it's severe anxiety or depression or or any of those types of things, how do you all handle that as an organization? Is it uh, they meet with you and then you're referring them out to somebody else outside of the organization? Uh, how does it work from a mechanic standpoint?
1: It depends that, you know, as as you know, that's sort of the quintessential psychologist answer, right? But um, it, it really does depend. I think, you know, there are several things you have to think about in, in these circumstances. So one is, you know, the degree of trust and relationship you have with the individual who's seeking help. The second is, are you the right person? Are you the person with the best training who can support this person? Are you the most accessible? Um, Will they connect with you? You know, all those things are are part and parcel of the decision-making process. Um, And then I think third is sort of like what's really needed here. And with those three factors, I can start to figure out a little bit, what's the the best path forward? So um, we have people who Um, will work with me individually. We have people in the Toronto community that we'll refer out to who are great partners and offering support for us. Um, It really just depends on what's gonna be best for the individual. I mean, my role is to make sure everyone has what they need from a mental health standpoint and a mental performance standpoint. And that also means that I'm not all things to all people. I can't be all things to all people. And so if I'm not the person that you need, or I don't feel like I can best be helpful, or you feel like I can't best be helpful, and there's someone else you'd fit better with, it's my responsibility to be a conduit to that and make that happen. Um, and I've been, again, fortunate that the organization's really supportive of that. I think ultimately we're all trying to win on and off the court. And so this is just one part of that is helping people get exactly what they need um and you know not having such a big ego that it kind of all has to run through me i just i don't believe in that
0: when you say off the court i do think about perhaps some dark sides that come with uh performance or greatness or uh certainly in sport and i was just having this conversation with someone recently we were actually talking about tech entrepreneurs and we were listing like who are the all-time great tech entrepreneurs And then we sort of said, well, how's their marriage? Like, how's their relationship with their family? Uh, How's their relationship with society? (laughs) Like, you know, and I don't need to name the names, but very few of them seemingly have lives that I would trade my life for um, when it comes to off the, the, I guess, the grid or whatever they call it. And I'm just thinking of tech. Uh, and I think in sports kind of similarly, if I look at some of our legends and, and great, great athletes of all time, I'm not suggesting that a divorce means that you're not successful at home and people get divorced for all kinds of reasons or people that cheat on their spouses. There's a lot that goes into that. And I'm not trying to shame that. However, when I got married, I was hoping that we would stay together, uh, and be happy. And so for me, at least that is part of success. Um so I say all that to say do you have any thoughts on what makes someone elite at performing let's just use on the court and how that might not actually apply to them being elite at what they need to be off the court
1: Yeah it's a great question um I I guess what comes to mind to me is I think that you can be I think you can reach a specific place of greatness or being elite with some degree of what people would call balance. I am not convinced that you can become the best in the world at what you do with true balance. And so I think that doesn't always mean that what's happening off the court will end up in something as difficult as a divorce, right? It might mean that you really have to cultivate your relationships to be with people who support you being all in on this one thing for a really, you know, ultimately like a short period of time, right? Like an MBA career, if you're lucky is 15 years, you know, and so by your mid thirties, you're going to be thinking about like the next phase of your life with different demands and different things you're trying to be great at. And so that really concentrated period of 15 years does require this incredibly intense commitment, um, and being, um, all in and immersed in the pursuit of that singular goal of being the the absolute best version of yourself as a basketball player, football player, whatever it is, that that you might be. I, I wish I could say here's a really clear point where that sort of drops off. But I, I think you can get close um, with some degree of of kind of balance or work-life integration. And I just think to really get to that highest point it does require a bit of, of sacrifice. I mean, it it just, I, that's my, my two cents. Um, I think the other skills I think about are things that sort of would be relevant here to me that I think um, are interesting dynamics at play in sport is like the idea of self-regulation is one I've thought a lot about where, you know, to be an elite athlete requires a really, really high degree Of self-regulation on the field or on the court, right? It requires like directing your attention and focus, keeping your thoughts productive, managing your energy and emotion, um, managing relationships with teammates in in the heat of the game. And yet sometimes those skills don't readily translate to life at home, right? You see um, difficulties with relationships, interpersonal violence, right? Other things that are sort of behavioral issues that become problematic. So I think those are some interesting like places to think about and push on because on one hand, you sort of see the skills being um, borne out on the field. And on the other hand, they're not being brought to the other areas of life that are really important. Um, but I'd have to probably think about that one more to unpack it.
0: Yeah. It's something I think about quite a bit, like what is what is success for me? And then it's a question I'm often asking my clients as well. And I think when it comes down to, you know, this podcast called Intentional Performers, because it, to your point, if you're intentional about what your role is and let's just use the sport of basketball and you're, you can communicate that to your partner and there can be mutual understanding as far as how we're supporting each other and that we've got this window to be successful and maybe it'll involve some obsession or maybe it'll involve some things that in another world would seem unhealthy. Um, but I'm doing it intentionally, thoughtfully on based on what I want, what I need, and what I'm going for in, in my vision here. And like most relationships, it requires great communication. Um, but I think about it for myself. like, Would I be really good at, at what I do for a living and be great at home? Or would I rather be great at what I do for a living and and maybe good at home. And um, I think those are questions that we all are constantly asking ourselves. And to your point about sacrifice, I love this phrase. Like when we're saying yes to something, we're saying no to something else. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, especially for our athletes. And, and the nature of sport is you have an 82 game schedule. Half that time you're, you're on the road. um, And you can't really dodge that. Like you can, as an entrepreneur, uh, You don't have as much autonomy uh, in sport. You don't have as much freedom. And so I think sport in general is kind of a loaded deck because you are dealing with high performance, high pressure. We're talking about professionally, at least. Um, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be evaluation. There's going to be identity crisis. And I would imagine all of that comes back to the mental health of an athlete and why it's so valuable not to just build a, a, a sort of house of cards when you think of their health can you speak to that a little bit of how you think about building their mental health and maybe their resilience and their ability to deal with hard things and how that could help them on the court but also how it might impact them off the court
1: sure yeah I think to me mental health is sort of the foundation of Peak performance on the court and peak performance off the court I mean to your to your point like I think you can be great at home and great at work I, I do think that's possible. I think it's the very, very tip of the spear, you know, the the 1% of the 1% where you can be great and good or excellent and good, right? But at some point, that sort of like idealized version of balance, I think tips out of whack. But anyway, back to the mental health piece. I I guess the way I think about it is kind of like physical health, right? You can't really perform at your best. If your body isn't operating at your best, it's hard to dunk a basketball with a broken leg well, it's sort of hard to sustain energy for an 82 game season while you're also experiencing depression. And I think, you know, ultimately all of these things connect back to our brain and the way our body manages energy and our allostatic load. Right. And so for me, having good mental health, taking care of your mental health, is about leaving more room for you to be a peak performer, right? It's taking care of the things off the court, self-care, all that stuff. So that way you can uh, reach your full potential. But everyone is going to experience mental health in some way or another, right? It's just part and parcel of the human experience. And so the more we can build those skills for coping, the quicker we can get back on our quest for being the best version of ourselves, reaching our full potential, all of all the stuff we're after in in elite performance. So to me, it's, it's very foundational. Um, it's building things like self-awareness, stress management skills, resilience, um, staying connected to our values and having fun, um, having good social support and good relationships. The things that we know create for create a meaningful life right and create just generally healthy people but don't necessarily mean, if you just do those things, you're going to absolutely reach your full potential. Like it does take a little bit more work to get to that peak level. There are other things you need to be doing beyond those, you know, core set of five or six or seven factors, but those things can also protect you from having experiences like a depressive episode or en- generalized anxiety or social anxiety or other issues that could manifest through the course of a professional career if not addressed or taken care of.
0: I think of a lot of the athletes that I've worked with over the years and they usually have brilliant minds and the way they can think the game is always impressive. I go back to my education and a lot of my education was cognitive behavioral, meaning we would talk about self-talk and the story that they're telling themselves and the dialogue that they're having with themselves and how that impacts their body. And so I think there's a lot around mindset and where are you mentally, where I didn't think there was a lot of education. I still think there's a lacking is on the emotional side. And, well, how do you feel? And how does your feeling or your emotion impact your behavior? And you said you were talking about energy earlier, and you're talking about relationships. You know, these are largely emotional uh, experiences that humans have. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you think about emotions uh, playing a role in in athletes? And then I want to, after that, we're going to shift back into thinking about more systems and process and, and that sort of stuff. But let's stay with the athlete for now and and how you coach them on emotions and and how you think about emotions playing a role in performance.
1: Yeah, cool. I mean, the first thing for me is debunking the idea that you can somehow be rational versus emotional or that you can be absent of emotion. Scientifically at a base level, we're all feeling something all the time, right? We're all experiencing some degree of pleasure or displeasure with some valence, right? Maybe it's strong, maybe it's weak, but it's like constantly there. So that's my starting point for managing emotion and dealing with emotion, right? It's it's about the idea that like, this is a part of the human experience. So we're not going to get rid of it. We're not going to fight it. There's not going to be any way you're going to convince me that you can make a completely rational, unemotional decision because it's just always here. And we know this, this is like neuroscientifically supported. There's tons of data to back this up. If you're interested in it, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work out of Northeastern speaks to this. And she wrote a great book called How Emotions Are Made that talks about um, the theory of constructed emotion. And it's the idea really that our brains are constantly issuing predictions, educated hypotheses about the world, comparing our hypothesis to the data that's coming in, And correcting for that and one way that we correct for that or one way that we make sense of our hypothesis is with emotion concepts and emotion words right so we have an experience we know that typically say something like pressure or performance anxiety is associated with this moment that we're having right now what is that physiological feeling i'm having how might i explain that um and then you end up with something like i feel performance anxiety that's like a really boiled down distilled version of it so that's how I think about emotion, right? It's it's constantly here. And now it's how can we use this emotion most effectively to support us, right? So I'm not interested in getting rid of your emotion. I'm not interested in getting rid of let's say anxiety, which is something people are constantly trying to push away because this anxiety is somewhat helpful, right? Like one, if you didn't feel any anxiety, eventually you just sort of like fall over from boredom, right? Like it would just, you just collapse. But two is like, there's a, this is a sign, right? This is a sign that there's something important here. There's something significant happening here. You care about this. And now the skill is really, how do we use that change in physiology? How do we use this change in energy to support your peak performance. And so it might be things like consciously redirecting our attention or our focus back to the task at hand versus the internal cues that we're feeling. It might be something like doing some deep breathing because we realize we're sort of over aroused and we need to come back to our place where we can maximally use our emotion and our energy to facilitate our performance. Um, it might be something like sharing how we're feeling so that we can sort of like process that and then move forward. So there are a bunch of different ways you can quote unquote regulate that emotion, but it, it's sort of always there. And so, um, I work from more of like an acceptance and commitment therapy, process-based therapy approach um, that I think m- matches well with this kind of ideology. And so, I think the big thing for emotion there, of course, is this idea of acceptance. And and to be clear, like acceptance is not you just sort of like take everything and it is what it is, and there's nothing you could do. Like acceptance is if there is in fact nothing you can do to change this situation or change this experience than it is being willing to sit with the discomfort, as long as you're moving towards something that you care about, right? So performance anxiety, um, dealing with pressure, dealing with, you know, difficult relationships, right? Like, that's part of the human experience. If you value relationships, if you value being a good performer, you're never going to go out there and never feel anxious. Um, but it's what are you willing to do with that anxiety and the service of your, your seeking high performance? And then, of course, if you can do something about it, you absolutely should. Um, you know, That's part of being a peak performer too, right, is, is understanding what you can and can't control, uh, making changes where you can make changes and taking ownership over the situation. So those are the ways I sort of play with and work with emotion in my work.
0: And I'll add another word to it, which is mindfulness and the ability to notice or observe your thoughts and feelings without judgment. And, of course, a great tool to use with mindfulness is meditation. But even more than that, like, I think I had a client this morning tell me, hey, I'm good at all these things, but I really struggle with meditation. I'm like, okay, let's just be mindful. Notice the clouds. Mm -hmm. Notice Notice someone smile. Notice how you're feeling uh when you're about to give a presentation. Like let's just start there. And I think sometimes we big up uh meditation and we we focus on that and you know, I, I look, I've meditated in Cambodia with monks and they don't have rules. <laughs> They're just sitting there. Um, so, uh, you know, we could we could talk about tools and, and all day long. Uh, I want to go back to, to systems, though, and, and thinking about environment, because, of course, we want to work from the inside out and notice ourselves and be with ourselves and not let the environment drive how we show up every day and Uh, if you're a part of an organization and you're trying to create high performing teams, by the way, um, then it's important that we think about what leads to high performance teams. And you talked about culture earlier. And I think I've been thinking about this quite a bit. We often talk about culture with, or within organizations, what are your values? What's your mission? What's your philosophy? What's your vision? All of these things, by the way, I talk about that with individual clients as well, um, But even more than that, I'm thinking more about systems and processes. And I actually think sports gets a lot of stuff wrong, but it's one of the things I think a lot of great sports organizations get right, which is here's our system. Here's our style of play. Here's our thing. This is like our core element that we want to have and implement on our team. And you can see teams that have great systems. In addition to that, they think about what is our process and we here trust the process all the time. But to me, process is simply just what are we doing in order to make our system work uh, more efficiently and, and more effectively. And I'm thinking more about just, gosh, the best organizations tend to know their overall thing or element that they use to to function their their business or their team. And they have a process with which they go about doing that. And they create clarity amongst the team as far as this is our system and this is our process. No, by the way, they can adjust the system or or adjust the process along the way, but at least they have clarity on that. Um, from your vantage point, having interacted with you know a front office in Toronto, which has won a championship, um, which is well respected. Uh, I know some people that you interact with regularly. I think highly of them. Um, certainly you have a, a head basketball coach who once again won a championship. Um, but when you're interacting with uh, those people and coaches in the front office, how are you thinking about systems and processes as it relates to your role on the psychology side of things?
1: Yeah, well, one, I really like how you you described your systems and processes. And the word that came to mind for me that that sort of like links the two ways I think about it is this concept of like having a core identity, right? Or, you know, I I think about it as like a central organizing purpose, like, why do we exist? What what are we doing here? What are we all after? Um, and I think knowing the keeping the main thing the main thing right making the main thing the main thing is really important. And so to compare and contrast for a minute, I think one of the things sports often does wrong is look to everybody else and try to figure out how we can copy them. And it's like, well, you know, if you take college football, for example, right, uh, Alabama and Georgia, they both are all about the process. So now we got to figure out the process. Well, what's Alabama doing? What's Georgia doing? And like, look, we should all try to learn from other great institutions or great organizations. But ultimately, unless you're at Alabama, you're probably not going to recreate the Alabama system or the Alabama identity. It's your institution, wherever it is that you might be. And it's your responsibility as a leader to then help create and shape an identity or a central organizing purpose. So that's sort of the foundational element for me, right? Like, why do we exist? What are we here for? What's our mission, vision? What are we working toward? I think the other elements of culture I think a lot about are value standards and norms. So that might be my language for what you're describing as processes, right? So values are um, sort of what I'd consider like a middle layer right underneath the central organizing purpose. It's like the qualities with which we want to pursue that organizing purpose. So if our central organizing purpose is winning an NBA championship and being the best organization on and off the court, like what does that look like? What qualities should that have on a daily basis? Maybe it looks like Honestly, assessing ourselves, maybe it looks like um, high level commitment, maybe it looks like hard work, maybe it looks like consistent respect. These are all value words that people use a lot, but there's no right or wrong answer. There's no like magic formula for getting the values right. It's about what the people in your organization can connect to, can see themselves in, can buy into, and ultimately can live out on a regular basis. And if your values don't match what the people you have can do... Then you kind of have to change either the people or the values, right? Those are those are your two options. Um, and I think that's a really important sort of middle sub-layer. But what I'm focused on most as a psychologist is the next layer, which is the standards and norms. So standards are sort of like what are the expectations we have, right? Expectations have a pretty outsized impact on our behavior generally and of our experience of the world right so if you think about uh, i don't know if you've ever read the book the happiness equation it's a it's a really really good book written by this guy mo gadat who's an engineer former engineer at google and uh google x i think is what it's called now too their little like ventures arm where he's just worked on moonshot after moonshot and basically what he found was like the people who are happiest are the people whose experience matches their expectations and the more that you're you can sort of Map out really clearly, like what you're expecting of people, how you want them to behave, what the values look like in action at a foundational level every day the better your organization is going to be, right? So if you have a value and you stick it on the wall, but you don't describe how to do the value, how to live the value out every day, what you're going to find is that ultimately everything just trends toward chaos. (laughs) You know, that's like, I think it's Murphy's second law, right? (laughs) So so it's just this idea that like, eventually we all tend toward disorder if we don't have this standard that we're, we're working toward that we've operationalized and made really concrete. So I'm looking for and listening for what are the expectations that we have of how people will show up and operate here in this environment? And then the norms. Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Before you go to norms, let's just stay on expectations for a second. And then I'll come back to identity as well. Cool. I've worked with a lot of golfers and it was always funny to me when a golfer would come off the golf course, I'd always ask, Hey, how did the golf round go? And they'd look at me they'd be like, Oh, I shot a 71. And I look at them and I go, well, how did your round go? Um, because you're giving me a score, but I have no idea if you played an easy course, a hard course, if you had your A game or you had your C game, uh, if the person that you're playing against was an asshole and talking to your backswing every time, if your girlfriend just dumped you, like like, it's just a score. It's not... Given me that much nuance and detail. And so I started having golfers create an expectation scorecard where they would create five expectations that they'd have for a round. And then they'd score themselves in addition to the, the score that they had to put on the card uh, for winning or losing. And it was always interesting to hear what they would say. Like, what do I expect of myself for a four and a half hour round where it's 18 holes. And I expect to take a breath before every golf shot. I expect to smile. I expect to talk to myself in a useful way i expect to um engage with my playing partner uh i expect to ask the caddy uh for advice right like it, it, they were the expectations we we always went to as process expectations and I, I bring this up because i think that word expectations sometimes think of, people think of it as outcome and they think of we expect to win a championship like okay cool well like we expect to win good like you play sports if you don't expect to win don't Show up right, and but to me, I love owning your own expectations and reclaiming that word and attaching it to processes. Um, how do you think about that when you think of expectations, uh, and, and setting them within an organization?
1: Great question, too. I like your ideas about expectations, I think those are, are pretty powerful. I'm not sure I would have framed it as cleanly as you did. I, I guess to me, I, I see it as a both and so I think about these you know basic expectations of how we're going to operate on a daily basis these process expectations you're talking about um you know little things right show up on time be attentive you know um stay focused ask for what you need and then i also see there being some power in i don't know if i call them outcome expectations but maybe they are but like the idea of expecting to win you know yes We should, right? Like we should in a sport environment. But the reality is like not everyone does, you know, not every team does expect to win. And so there's something to be said for setting these expectations that shape your beliefs about what's possible, that shape your beliefs around what you want to be working toward. And so um, I think in a sense, expectations can also be sort of high level goals or high level standards, we're we're kind of constantly working toward it reminds me of the concept of the Pygmalion effect, you know, from the research with um, kids at school, where, you know, if you tell a teacher, like this kid is a high potential kid, well, they end up treating the kid better, and the kid has better academic performance. And so there's, there's something here, right about we've, this expectation is consciously, subconsciously, whatever you want to call it, shaping behavior, it's shaping how we're interacting with the student, it's shaping what the student is able to do and how they perform in class. And so I think of that kind of outcome expectation in that way, right? Like, what's this idealized version that we're working toward? Because if we have that as the expectation, people will tend toward that, right? Not only will leadership treat the athletes in a way that facilitates that kind of performance, but the athletes also have a really clear understanding of what is going to be tolerated or not tolerated here.
0: Mm. Awesome. All right. You I think you were going to go to norms next. Is that the the Yes? The, yeah, go to norms for me.
1: Well, this is a, is a great dovetail to the last comment, which is norms are what you accept, right? So <laughs> norms are the sort of like implicit, unspoken things that you tolerate in your environment that are actually the most honest reflection of what your culture really is, right? And so this is the place where I've seen sport environments go wrong. You know, you you spend five minutes thinking up your values in the shower, you print them on a big billboard, you put them up around the office and really cool branded stuff. And you say, these are our values. This is what we stand for. We're all about honesty. We're all about respect. We're all about hard work. And then you walk out of the meeting room And you hear a coach talk crap about another coach right away. You you hear someone undermine something that was just said in the meeting, or people roll their eyes like that was crap. Can you believe what that guy just put up there? And automatically, you have a moment to see, like, what are people going to tolerate? And most of the time, people tolerate that stuff. And then they're like, well, I don't understand why our culture isn't working, right? Why aren't people honest? Why aren't people respecting each other? Well, it's because. Whether you've put these values up or not or set these expectations, it all comes back down to the process and how you're managing those things on a daily basis. And so the norms to me are sort of like what shows up in normal, typical human behavior and what are we tolerating in the culture? And a simple way I think about it a lot is like culture is really, really hard one. It's hard to build a great culture. And super easily lost if you have one behavior, one norm that undermines everything else that you're trying to accomplish. And you can see this everywhere in sports. Like there are so many examples. My favorite example of all of this, um, which is always a hot button issue, but I'll bring it up anyway, is sports places that call themselves a family. We're not a family because you will fire me if you don't like what I say to you, or if I don't live up to your expectations, or if I don't perform in the way you want. Or if you just go somewhere else and you don't wanna take me with you, right? Like, I don't know, you have two kids, I have one kid. I don't get to take a new job and just leave her because it's not convenient, right? But this is sort of like this illusion that we create, right? That we should all be a family, that we're all in it together. And like, look, make no mistake about it. Like there are parts of that idea that I think are good, directionally correct. But the language, the value, the way that we try to live that out I think ends up being really challenging, because ultimately, when it gets tested with the norms, it's not the way that we behave. It's not the way that we do things. And one of my favorite questions to ask coaches that I've worked with is, would you want your kid, your actual child, to play here? Would this be an environment that you would welcome them into? That's usually a pretty good sign of what you're tolerating in your culture, what your norms are, whether or not you're living up to the values and expectations that you set. Most people wouldn't want their kid to be a part of something that wasn't healthy, high-performing, that didn't match the values. And so those are some ways you can kind of assess norms, think about it, how I think about culture.
0: It's so good. I, I'm like attaching some of my ideas with, with how you're thinking. And people might say, oh, these are just distinctions. And you know, who cares if you're using this word or that word? For me, those distinctions are huge because they provide clarity. And if we don't have the distinctions, uh, it, things become cluttered. And when things become cluttered, we don't perform as well. So like to me, I've always not always I've come to understand culture as to your point like what is the bad behavior that we tolerate like what's the worst behavior that we still will tolerate I think it's a big big part of every culture and by the way we all tolerate bad behavior even with our spouses right like there's there's a bad behavior our, our kids and you'll learn this as your kid starts to talk like there's going to be some bad behavior that you're probably not going to address and maybe it's not worth it and that's fine because we're all imperfect and that's what happens so I think it's the bad behavior we tolerate I think it's the behavior we reward. Um, so that could be playing time or contracts. Um, and then what do we fire for? And in your case, do you trade someone? Do we cut them? Um, and even you go beyond that and into the front office and the coaching staff, same sort of thing. And and so I think culture is a combination of all those. Like, what do what's the sports behavior we tolerate? What's the behavior we reward? And then what do we fire for? And I'm sort of putting that all under the umbrella in my head around what you call. What are the what are the norms but like process Norms so the the process as far as uh what what allows our system to work effectively and efficiently is going to be driven by what bad behavior we tolerate what we reward and what we fire for so I'm kind of seeing it as an umbrella in my head and um and, and it's it's fascinating because every organization has these um and when we don't have clarity around what we fire for what we reward and what bad behavior we tolerate, things become very confusing and you've probably had players see this to you. The worst place you can be at with an athlete on a sports team is if an athlete thinks that the coaching staff or the front office is playing games. When they say, I feel like they're playing games with me. It's, it's in a bad spot. Uh, and it's really hard to come back from that. Uh, so anyway, those were like some of the way I was digesting what you were talking about because I do think it's, it's really important. Uh, as you think about Toronto And you mentioned identity as the first layer here and the values for an outsider looking in and having visited Toronto and the, we, the North slogan and the NBA championship with fans outside the arena. And this idea that like, no, we're the entire country. Like we represent Canada who by the way, has gotten pretty damn good at hoops over the last two decades. Um, It, it, from my standpoint, it becomes clear like we are actually representing something way larger than just the city of Toronto. We're representing an entire country. This is the Canadian uh, professional basketball team here. Do you think that it has to be like that clean and clear. Do you all think about that as part of your identity when you're building culture? Uh, And I'll give another example that might resonate too. I remember that Detroit Pistons were winning a championship and were highly competitive with their team. And if people remember their team did not have a superstar. So it had five good players, but not a superstar. And they had a whole thing around blue collar and, you know, Detroit basketball. And it was this whole Uh, thing around being blue collar and being Detroit and the branding and marketing actually matched what they were doing on, on the court. And you could see almost this synergy that was taking place. Um, I don't know if that matters, but I'd be curious to get your perspective being in Toronto. uh, Obviously, you have the Maple Leafs right next door owned by the same people, Um, not the same uh, experience uh, the last few years, Um, not the same with Montreal Canadiens and Vancouver Canucks and Winnipeg Jets. I could go on and on. Um, So I'm curious what your observation is being a representative of the country and and how that impacts the culture of the team.
1: I think to me why it's so significant is it's something that you can quickly recognize and connect to if you value being a leader. And so I think to me, what it speaks to is the responsibility. I think we all feel to represent not just the organization well, but the country well, right. To show what a country of basketball, you know, players can do. Right. Um, And so for me, even as an American living in Canada, it's like a part of the identity that I can latch onto. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool, right? This is really unique here. This is kind of a signature stamp for this city that cannot be replicated because there's no other basketball team in Canada. And I think to me, that's really what these kind of cool features of the culture that you're describing, like whether it's here, the old Detroit teams, that's what I think it's about is how do you create an identity that every individual can find a way to connect with even if they're not like the most perfect mesh or match, right? Like we have plenty of Americans who work for a Canadian basketball team that still feel a degree of responsibility to sort of elevate the sport here through the work that we do that feel like we're representing um, the country and in, in the work that we do. And I think it's a lot, it's some of the, internal leadership its some of the slogan, but really it's that kind of cohesive narrative, right? That this is what we're all about and this is what we stand for. And so I think that's that's what the great cultures are looking for. It's your unique thing that speaks to whether it's your location or the era or the people you have, right? Something that, that you can latch on to that people can then interpret for themselves and internalize right so to give like I guess a clear example you know one of the things I think about a lot with teams who are doing say values work is um you know typically teams will identify five to seven values and let's just say for the sake of conversation like respect is one of the values well the next step of that conversation is to ask each individual player what does respect mean to you How do you best receive being respected? Like how will you know someone else is being respectful and how are you going to demonstrate respect to other people? And what you find is that the answers are not the same, but they don't need to be. We just need to understand how each individual is connecting with that value and how they see themselves living that value out. And as long as we have that mutual understanding, we can bring that value about together in a shared kind of identity sort of way. And so that's what I think like we, the North does as sort of like a big North star, right. It's like, it gives everyone something they can latch onto and understand in their own way and manifest in their own way, which I think is, is kind of cool, but it doesn't have to be something, you know, countrywide. It can be specific to your region or whatever it is that speaks most to the community that you're in.
0: Yeah. Community, belonging, these things impact from the outside in how we show up. And I think to your, to how we started this conversation. Yes, we want to work from the inside out and we want to work from the outside in. It's both. And I'm always laughing when people say, you need to work from the inside out. And then I'm like, yeah, but we're also talking about culture and energy and all that stuff, which is outside in. And so ideally you have those two forces working together in unison and rowing the boat in the same direction. Uh, And speaking of rowing boats, you said something about leadership and you said ultimately it's like, hey, do we have leaders that will carry that torch? I've been thinking about this a lot lately, which is, you know, in sports, if we are honest about what teams value and look, I've consulted to three different NBA teams and I will tell you all three of them shops for different groceries. You know, I, there was one that really focused on their values and their system. There was another that really focused on the best talent at the draft and the other that really focused on something very specific that they were looking for. And I just, I really think that none of those teams were really focused on leadership. And for me, I've come to think that leadership is, do you make a positive influence on the team? Are you focused on making a positive influence for the team? And basketball is a team sport and we see it. Like there are these super teams that exist in the NBA right now. And if you look around the league and Things have changed the last few years. It's a pretty fascinating time in the NBA. We don't know who's going to win the championship. You know, 10 years ago, we did. We knew it was going to be between these two or three teams. It's kind of a cool time in the NBA. At least I think so. Leadership, though, like, what would a team look like if they were all leaders? What if we had a team that was all focused on positively influencing the team? And I know that's sort of pie-in-the-sky thinking, and I know for a fact Teams have won championships without having, you know, their best player as a as someone who's focused on positively influencing the team. Um, so I know it can go counter to hey, get the best players and put them together and, and win with talent. I'm curious to get your perspective whether it's drafting or free agency. How much do you value leadership? How much do you value people that actually want to make the team better and are focused on that? Um, As a primary focus rather than as a secondary focus, because there are plenty of athletes who want the team to do well, but their primary focus is to get paid. Um, way, like we can take this outside of sports. It's the same in business. I, I, it might even be more so in business. Cause there's not a shared like drive to win in the same way. Um, and, and so I see it in business all the time. Most people in business are focused on their own career and, and getting to where they need to be. And, and if they can't get it there, they'll go somewhere else, but you're in the sports world. So I'm curious, like how much do you value leadership as a quality when you're thinking about what a great team looks like?
1: I think it's tremendously important. And I see leadership, I think, similarly to you, right? So to me, when I think of a leader, it's a person who's willing to use themselves to help others get better, whatever that that looks like. And so I'm much less interested in kind of the formal hierarchical understanding of leadership. I'm much, much more interested in ideas of like informal leadership, which we know is in some ways, like the most powerful form of leadership on a team. Um, And in an organization, you know, there's good data to back that up. It's these like smaller nudges, the things that you don't always see. It's not always like the rah-rah vocal thing that that people get fired up with. And so that dovetails with your question, which is, I value it a lot. um, But I look for it in varied ways. And so I'm not I'm not always interested in the person who's you know, going to get up and give an impassioned speech, I think that's one way to do leadership as an athlete, right, is to call the group together and get in the huddle or talk in the locker room. And and there's value in that too. But there's also value in the guy who comes and puts his arm around you, you know, pre practice and says something to help you or says, Hey, you know, I noticed that you were a little off today, like you're doing okay. And we don't often think about that as like true leadership, especially in sports, you know, we're much more interested in, um, like the remember the Titans style leadership where you've got two guys screaming about what's most important to them. And and like I said, there's value in that too. But I think the best teammates are those who are doing it um, behind the scenes under the radar who know what buttons to push and levers to pull to get the most out of their teammates and want to do that. And ultimately, to me, to build, there's, it's one thing to win a championship one year. It's another thing to build a sustainable winning program over the long term. Those are two very different challenges. I think you can win a championship one year without leadership. I'm not sure you can build a dynasty without leadership. Um, and the leadership can look different. I don't think there's one way that, that it has to be. But I would be hard-pressed to find a dynasty team that did not have one or two really good leaders who figured it out in their own way, how to do it.
0: In the example I always give, and we can go outside your sport. It's probably easier to talk about uh, the Seattle Seahawks and the new England Patriots for a good decade were two of the most successful franchises and Pete Carroll and bill Belichick gonna have been more different. Tom Brady and Russell Wilson. Going to be more different. I don't know these people, but it's not that complicated to figure out. You just watch their interviews, listen to them talk, read their books. Their books are they, they talk, you know, Belichick is you know <laughs> do your job, and Pete Carroll is win forever, Uh transformational, transactional. Like it, it's just different. Um, So I agree with you. There's more than one way to do it, but I would argue that a lot of those people that I just mentioned are focused on trying to influence the team in a positive way and are focused on the end goal and the end in mind and developing a process to and, and developing systems to help them get there and so um yeah I, I think i just think i think it's undervalued i really do and i think i've been in war rooms i've been interviewing players and in, in many different leagues in three different leagues and um i find that it's it's pretty low. And by the way, I'm not anti-talent. Like I'm very pro-talent. I think, I know I had a ceiling in basketball that was very, very low. Uh, It didn't matter what qualities I had. Um, So it it has to be both, but I I just find that they, we don't always focus on what can make the team better. And that once again, I go to business as well, which I know you spend some time in. Uh, I want to go to this idea of an unfair advantage. I remember the first person that asked me, what is your unfair advantage? And I paused, and I thought, "Geez, that's a great question." And I didn't have an answer uh, for you. You have a newsletter around this idea of an unfair advantage of a podcast around this idea of an unfair advantage. Why those two words? Why why put those words together and and focus on those?
1: To me, the unfair advantage is about your signature strengths and how we leverage that to help you be the best performer that you can be. So I'm a big believer in optimizing your strengths. That's not to say don't work on your weaknesses, but it's to say we're generally in we're over-indexed on the idea of building up our weaknesses and not focused enough on, on building up our strengths. And so I like the term unfair advantage because it, it feels inimitable. It feels hard to replicate. It feels like it's unique to you and it's all built on the principle that everyone has one um and so that was really like the genesis of that and part of how that newsletter came together and how it continues to evolve is um out of like what both Cody and I found to be our own unfair advantages right so for me i think it's my my background and my experience it's the training in psychology it's experience being a division 1 coach it's a background in business that gives me a unique lens that also it informs a lot of how I do my work. And um, you know there are a lot of other good practitioners out there who don't have any of those experiences and who I admire and who do great things too, and who have their own unfair advantage. That's just mine that I think is is hard to replicate and hard to replace. That makes me a bit unique at what I do. I'm curious what what your answer was when you got asked.
0: I think it was um being perceptive. Uh, I'm deaf in my left ear. And so, um, I, uh, I can't hear great. And so all my life, I have used my eyes for a lot of my learning. And even in school, I would have to sit on one side of the room and, um, just be very aware of where I was. So, I probably am overly sensitive as well. Cause there's probably stuff going on in my body that, that I notice or I feel. Um, so I think my unfair advantage came from sort of that daredevil philosophy. Um, and, uh, you know, where he loses his sight, but he's got all these other unfair advantages. Um, and so, uh, that's how I think I answered it at the time. Look, I also think of the word privilege, right? Like I, I am very quick to acknowledge like privileges that I have in my life. I grew up in a wealthy suburb. I had two parents that loved on me. I had two brothers that are great. I've grew up in a neighborhood with friends and went to a good school. And so, so like, I think of unfair advantage in that sense too, that um, I'm born in the U S I was born in a city, like I in a suburban area of a, Thriving city, like I could go on and on and on in that sense, but um yeah, I I think it's my ability to see things that others miss, connect things that others miss in part because of something that I didn't have. Um, how would you answer it for, for yourself?
1: Man, that is such a cool answer, and I, I appreciate like the superhero side of it, I appreciate the story side of it. Um, and I appreciate the, the privilege part of the conversation too. I mean, certainly when we we're kind of thinking about the terminology we had, we had thought a little bit about like the connotation associated with that or what other associations might people make. And ultimately I think still landed on this idea that like everyone has that kind of signature strength, that unique thing. Um, I, I think probably mine is the ability to see a system and break it down into component parts and see how things fit together and identify what levers to pull or things to move that can make a big change and do it in a sort of behind the scenes way. Is there a Um, story?
0: Is there a story as to how you learned how to do that?
1: I think it was honestly like, exploring just a million different things you know like that's just always been something i've been interested in is how do i kind of take information from across different fields or experiences from across different fields and synthesize and and build it into like a core working model of how things work and so i think it was a little bit of like being a college football coach and burning out on that and not feeling connected and going through a really tough period in my own life afterward and thinking about like what was that about? And then arriving at like, oh, there was some system issue here, right? And like what would I have done to make it different, or how could I make it different or better? And then it was um trying to kind of find my own way and getting my MBA along the way and sort of thinking about business and now thinking about like the way leaders, managers, people in business do things and tying that back to coaches. And then it was getting my PhD and thinking about, well, how does that connect back to business and back to coaching? Right? It's just like this sort of virtuous cycle i guess where pieces of the puzzle started to fit together for me and i just ended up building sort of accidentally like a really rich conceptual network that allowed me to sort of see the different ways things might piece together and play out from a bunch of different models or different ways of thinking about things and then it's just getting the reps and and sort of being in these spaces that i've been super fortunate to be welcomed into and starting to tease that all apart and apply what i've learned
0: there's something really cool. If we put together what we both said, our unfair advantage came from some sense of adversity or, or some negative thing from happening. And so like, my answer to your question is both things, right? It's like, Oh, I definitely did not start at home plate when I started my life and my career. And, and so I have this privilege that definitely gave me an unfair advantage. And I think there was something that I didn't have that as a result created a thirst and a ability and a capacity to be better at certain things because I had that taken away. And just this morning I had a client and we were talking about their unfair advantage is their ability to connect with a lot of different people. And where did that come from? It came from being in different environments as a kid and feeling like an other and then learning how to fit in. And you know, being able to switch from those different environments, and so I wonder as you continue to explore people's unfair advantage, how much of it is an unfair advantage based on privilege, versus how much of it is based off of adversity. Have you noticed anything on on that as you're exploring what people's unfair advantage is?
1: I think most people gravitate toward the adversity and then what what grew out of adversity is a great line of research around the idea that talent needs trauma um, which is obviously an extreme way of framing it for you know getting people to pay attention to a line of research but it's just the idea that like adversity does tend to bring out people's real strengths um, and so you know certainly I think there's always an element of identity that's a part of the unfair advantage and you know um, to use your metaphor of being born on on home plate, like I, I too did not start at home plate. And so there's, there's trying to unpack and learn more about that and how that impacts the way I move through the world and the work that I do. And then there's also still recognizing, like you said, that everyone sort of has unique trials that they go through and, and how you come out the other side and the skills you develop in coping with that, I think do then uniquely position you and lend themselves to you maximizing and leveraging those things. And so I think people are are more tend to more gravitate toward that concept. Like, here was this difficult moment. Here's what I've I've learned from that. And here's how it carries me forward. Um, and I think those things are often indicative of what our real strengths are and, and our true potential. Um, those are sort of moments that like show us what we're really capable of. Um, and that's I think the genesis of the unfair advantage.
0: You don't have to go into specifics here, but I know you and Cody are big on Coaches' health and making sure that coaches are, um, you know, doing what they're often telling their athletes to do and whether that's sleep or nutrition or taking care of themselves mentally. Uh, have you noticed uh, anything in the coaches that you're around? Look, you're around professional coaches uh, every single day. Uh, and I would even extend it up to management and and people that you notice there. Are there unfair advantages that you notice that they tend to have in order to, to make them elite at what they do?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think everyone I, I work with, I'm, I work with such a talented group of people. They all have their own things that sort of make them I- incredible in their own unique ways. Um, and I think part of reaching that level of excellence is figuring out what you're kind of signature strengths are, what your unfair advantage is, and then doubling down on that and pushing on that and trying to maximize that. And and I think that's what the really talented people here have done across the board. It's not just leadership and coaches. it's, It's in all departments, really. Um, And that's part of what I think makes our organization special. Um, And I think, you know, the data sort of backs this up, right? Like the people who have the best time at work are people who get to use a strength every day, and people who generally feel energized by what they're getting to do. And the two sort of go hand in hand, you know, if you get to use a strength every day, you tend to feel more energized. And then if you feel more energized, you're going to use your strengths more. And it sort of goes goes back and forth. And so um, I think, here, we're really fortunate that we, we have an organization that does operate and focus on getting everyone to achieve their full potential, wanting everyone to be their best in service of the team, being the best it can be. And I think that all boils down to putting people in a position to leverage their unfair advantage to help the team, taking all these unique strengths, putting them together as a group, and now let's see what we can go do.
0: Do you all use StrengthFinder?
1: We haven't used Strength Finder, at least to my knowledge, they may have used it before I got here. Um, You know, I'm a big fan of the VIA character strengths test. So that's been one that I've rolled out. I think that works well and has some good language. But honestly, I think any of the strengths based tests are are interesting ways to sort of like put some conceptual language around what it is that you're good at.
0: And why take on this mission with Cody? Uh, So we've had Cody on the podcast. Uh, We mentioned before I started recording consider him to be a friend, even though we've only met in person once we've, we've done some stuff together. I just think he's a really sharp guy and thoughtful guy. Um, why, why the passion for sort of coaching coaches or serving coaches, uh, and focusing on that, especially when it comes to the newsletter and, and some of the content you put out, uh, what's the mission behind the desire to serve coaches?
1: Yeah. Cody's all right. I, I think for me, um, <laughs> Yeah, so some of it's born out of my personal experience, right? Like I was in a coaching environment where I mean, like, I can like, vividly replay in my mind the moment where another assistant coach who I now, you know, a decade plus later, consider to be a friend kind of, who told me like, you can sleep when you're dead, like, you'll be fine. Don't worry about taking care of yourself. Like, you'll you'll be fine. You just got to push through it. And I, I honestly, like that was after that season was the lowest point in my life I've, I've ever had. Like I was completely burnt out. I was lost. I didn't really know like what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to feel like that every single year until I reached some, you know, grand destination and then, you know, figured out from there how to do it well, you know? And so some of it's born out of my own experience and understanding like just how intense, of a pressure cooker that coaching environment can be and wanting to make coaching a healthier place. Some of it's born out of some of what we started this conversation with, which is, you know, the environment is heavily dictated in sport by the coach. Um, and we know that if coaches are stressed out, if coaches are under functioning under under underperforming, the athletes perceive that athletes pick up on coaches who are stressed out or not feeling confident or who aren't focused, who are under pressure, and it impacts the athlete performance. Um, and so I think that's that's really critical, right, is helping coaches be the best version of themselves so that the system, so that the athletes, so that the people in the sport environment can be the best version of themselves. And then I'd say third is, you know, this is a group that I feel tremendous compassion for because um, the world around them in sport has kind of exploded, which has led to different responsibilities, different degrees of ownership, different degrees of things that they have to do that they never anticipated needing to do and not really having a ton of support from the sport infrastructure to put them in a position to be great at those things. Like the best example I can give is media, you know, like most head coaches don't become head coaches because they want to get up and do a press conference every day. And yet here we are putting them in front of, you know, reporters who are putting them in front of millions of people asking them difficult questions. Um, And, you know, most coaches, get some training and learn and are good at it, but it's ultimately not like the core of what they do. Well, you take that into things like managing an 82-game season, managing an 162-game season, right? Like really long, intense stretches of being under constant pressure, constantly needing to perform, constantly needing to deliver, and not really giving them the skills to to do so. Um, that just seems like a big gap and something that we've missed, and, and that's proving to be true, right? You're seeing – Plenty of young coaches retire, burn out, quit early. Cody shared with me on on Monday that there was just an Australian coach who died by suicide um, because of some of the pressure of being a coach. You've seen coaches walk away from coaching because they haven't spent enough time with their family. It's just painful. And Ultimately, I just don't believe it has to be that way. And so for me, that's kind of the driving force is like, I think we can make this better. Um, I think we can bring this more in balance. I think we can give coaches the tools they need to be the best version of themselves. And ultimately, as healthy as we can make coaches is as healthy as we're going to make a sport environment.
0: It's incredible how many people I've had on this podcast who walked away from coaching and, and walked away from you know millions of dollars. Uh, and it's not like that's the purpose of this podcast. There's probably been 10 or 12. And I'm talking like, I mean, I'll name they've been on the podcast, Jay Wright, uh, Quinn Snyder, um, Muffin McGraw. Uh, we just had Sherry Cole on. Uh, we've had Becky Burley. We've had Jessica Kern. We've had on Adele Harris. We've had—I I mean, I—I I could probably keep going. Bronco Mendenhall. Um, and some of those have walked away forever. Some of them maybe have taken a year off. Um, Joanna McCauley, I—I could—I could keep going. Uh, we've just had on a lot of them, and there is a common thread of, hey, like some of them, it was just time, like they were old enough and felt accomplished enough and they want to do other things. Um, but some of them are really open and honest about the challenges that come with the job. And certainly at the college level, there's a lot of stuff that's changed and that continues to change. Um, and at the professional level, the stakes continue to rise as well. Um, so I think the work that you and Cody are doing is essential, is important. And I just, fully support it to those who are listening to this, um, even, you know, high school, we, like, we tend to talk about college and pro, but the high school coaches too. I mean, I've got plenty of friends that coach at that level and they have to deal with parents and they have to deal with administration. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a challenge. So, um, whatever level people are at, we need to find better ways to continue to support these people who have a big influence on the people that they lead. Uh, and you said it earlier, those, especially the head coach, they really impact the environment tremendously and impact the team tremendously. And if they're not okay, the environment's probably not going to be okay either. Um, Alex, I want to give you a platform just to share where people can find you. I know you're active on Twitter and, and LinkedIn as well. Uh, so please share your handle. And then you've got the link tree thing set up. So I know when I click on Twitter, and, and I can see all your newsletters and podcasts, and you are you are not busy at all creating content these days. So uh, I say that sarcastically, Alex has a lot of different mediums, if you want to learn more about how he thinks and the way him and Cody are thinking. And um, there's a lot of different ways to to learn from Alex. So if people want to do so, where's the best place for them to to learn with you?
1: You're too kind, Brian. Um, uh, the simplest place is Twitter, probably at Alex Auerbach, PhD. Same thing on LinkedIn, LinkedIn slash in slash Alex Auerbach PhD. Uh, you can find Unfair Advantage at joinunfairadvantage.com. And if you're interested in coaches education, Cody and I are going to be launching a series of webinars over the course of the next year um, through Unfair Advantage, really designed to promote coach health and high performance. We're going to cover a range of topics from understanding yourself as a high performer, to um, understanding learning and memory so you can be more effective in your teaching, to managing coaching relationships, the whole gamut, really with our eye on helping coaches, you know, be their best when it matters most. Um, Please, you know, if I can be a resource to anyone listening, like don't hesitate to reach out, love to connect, would, would be delighted to hear from anyone. And I'm super grateful for the opportunity to be here with you.
0: Fantastic. I know we have a lot of coaches that listen, so hopefully you'll take Alex up on that. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn as well, Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. You can listen to Cody's conversation if you want to check that out. By the way, he's another coach who um, I think. Think has left coaching to pursue other interests as well. And as I said, and and Alex sort of took a swipe at him earlier. We, we I think we both, <laughs> we both think highly of Cody and think yes, the world of Cody. Absolutely. So, um, Alex, this has been a blast. Great to get to know you. I've enjoyed following you on Twitter for a while now. Uh, you put out great stuff. So keep up the good work and and glad we can make this happen. And next time you're in D.C., hopefully we can break bread. And certainly if I'm up in Toronto, I will be reaching out. So thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. The pleasure's mine. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The people who have the best time at work are people who get to use a strength every day and people who generally feel energized by what they're getting to do and the two sort of go hand in hand. You know, if you get to use a strength every day, you tend to feel more energized and then if you feel more energized, you're going to use your strengths more and it sort of goes goes back and forth.